Hello and welcome back to the 19th episode of the Create Stuff Podcast, where I interview people who create unique or less mainstream forms of content and stuff in general. I'm your host, Sean Sachs, and before we get started, a few quick things. If you can, leave a like, comment, subscribe. It helps a ton if you're on a podcast platform, rate or follow or whatever you want. Seriously, all of that does a lot in getting this out there. And also, if you could tell your friends who you think might be interested in even just one episode, you got like that one friend who's really into the Dream SP, tell them about one of those episodes. You got that guy who's like a fan of Nintendo in tubers hey look at this one you should recommend it to them seriously word of mouth is the best way this podcast can spread at the moment uh i also have a patreon even just one dollar helps me immensely also my audio quality is a little bit worse than usual in this episode it hopefully will not happen again i am currently improving my setup and will soon be moving locations to hopefully somewhere that will have some better audio quality in general some better acoustics enjoy the episode Welcome back to the something or other episode of the Create Stuff Podcast. I don't even know what episode this is anymore. Everything is just thrown out the window. Today, my guest is Sheezies from Boundary Break. Am I pronouncing your name right? Uh, it's actually She Says. She Says. I really should know that considering how many of your videos I watched. <laughs> but uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here, man. Yeah, it's great to have you. I've actually been a fan of your channel for a very long time. Even like, I want to say like, uh, even four or five years ago, I still remember your videos on like Smash Brothers Ball and Ocarina of Time. Used to be a huge fan of that as a kid. Oh my God, yeah. You're like a Gen 1-er, I call it. (laughs) It's like the first year I was doing this. That's cool, man. Yeah, man. I'm a Gen 1-er. It was was actually a little bit insane that you said yes, I'm not going to lie. I really did not see that coming. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, it's always my pleasure, and uh, I listened to a couple... I think you sent links before, didn't you? What was the... I think so. What was the one that you sent me? Yeah, uh-huh. it's whatever. But anyways, I'm happy to be here. It, it, I'm more than happy to do interviews every once in a while, and um, you just caught me in a good time, you know? Like, right now, it's like after the holiday season, I'm not as busy, so uh, I'm happy to do it. Right, perfect. Well, uh, just to get into this, could you tell us what you do for people who might not be aware? So... I basically take the camera anywhere we want to try to find secrets and new discoveries to some of our favorite games. Um, And I've said that so many times in my life (laughs) 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 that I don't ever have to do a uh, retake on them. But um, yeah, essentially what happens is on my channel, I take video games that are generally popular and take um, the camera and modify it to move in any direction. And I consolidate my show to find the most interesting things that you would find out of bounds and um, create a, I suppose, I curate them. I curate all the best stuff that you could find out of bounds and work it into a 10 to 15 minute long YouTube video. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you often have to, uh, like, do you often find things that you have to decide whether you want to keep it in or not? Yes and no. So most of the time I just try to get everything in the episode, um, but... There's just occasionally times where it's super redundant. So like I found a dev cube underneath the ground. And of course I'll feature that in the episode. But then when we get onto cube number five or eight, it's like, okay, how many times can I talk about a similar looking dev cube in this game? (laughs) You know? So that's the only time I cut out content. Otherwise everything makes into the episode. So that's why sometimes you'll see it run to about 30 minutes. And it's just because that, that game had a huge boon of content, I guess. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Interesting. Okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, not going to lie. That just made me personally curious there, and I wanted to ask before I forgot it. (laughs) Oh, no problem. I thought that was... That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, all right. So we'll backpedal just a little bit. So tell me real quickly about your other series, Region Break. Well, okay, so Region Break is a newer series that I've put together where basically... Oh, I meant to say Region Locked, but I do want to know about Region Break, too. 
Oh, I don't. So, I don't run on. region locked. Uh, region locked is digital gaming. Oh, I'm wow. I'm smart. <laughs> okay, I'm. I'm really getting mixed, things mixed. Up. You know, you're not that the first the person to make that mistake, though. Like I see it all the time. There's people that say they are genuinely thankful that I've uh, made episodes for region locked, and I'm like, ah, uh, you know, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I can't take the credit though. <laughs> I think I actually I wrote down what is region locked, and that every single other line is region break. I guess. <laughs> nice. All right, go on about region region break. <laughs> I need to change the name on this. So I'm going to keep saying region locked. Yeah. So so region break is um, a series where I take the same game from two different regions and contrast all the differences between those two versions. Sometimes it'll be uh, how a game is localized, which is something that you know is it, that's probably the most involved aspect of the show because I have to bring on someone that can actually read Japanese dialect usually. Um, mm-hmm. But the other is um, like little things like graphical differences, musical differences. You'd be surprised, especially in earlier games, uh, how many things that developers will do to make it seem more appropriate for a new region or make something better because they really want it to have a strong impact in the region that they're porting the game to. So I've, I've just I've covered, I think, about six episodes now of Region Break. And it's definitely something that can continue onward in terms of viewership and also just uh, the wealth of games to choose from. There's a good pool of games that I think would make interesting YouTube videos. And so, yeah, that's... I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, that's something I think I started about six or seven months ago. I see. Wow. I, I really love that series. So, so far, of what I've seen of it, I, I think you did... I loved your Earthbound video on it. That was super interesting. Oh, thank you. I think right now that's one of the least viewed videos in the series i think uh the only one that wins out in terms of least viewed is the contra video but um but yeah thank you for watching that one i I had a good time making it too yeah it was super cool i love that you also go through the manuals not just the game that's like something i never see in videos yeah you know i think it's just that someone never thought to do it and you know also it it is a bit of a investment money-wise because then you have to like import the games and stuff like that make sure that's complete Mm. in box and you know CIBs are usually expensive and no matter which region you're buying from, but it's just a little yeah. bit of extra it, for me. It's not even just like putting in the extra effort. It's that it makes the, the production of the video all the more interesting to me, you know? So getting a, a translator involved and finding all those differences, it, it honestly brings a lot of passion to the videos themselves in, in my respect. Cause you know, there are stuff like, uh, the cutting room floor that will cover all sorts of similar content. But yeah, it's like you said, nobody really seems to to do, uh, you know, boxes and manual uh, contrasts. And that's just uh, one little thing to kind of separate me from the pack, I guess. Super cool. I love that stuff. Maybe that's uh, the the game collector inside of me coming out. But I love I love seeing uh, the old stuff like manuals i remember uh, on the way home from like the store at gamestop i have like super mario galaxy wii in my hands i'm just flipping through the manual uh, waiting to put the game in that really just brings up that nostalgic feeling to me you know what's funny is that mario galaxy is giving you that nostalgic feeling because that's only one generation behind where they stopped like they started uh, weaning them out yeah I uh, I guess I was lucky in that aspect that i got i was right there though maybe a little bit later i would have just had my phone instead <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the stuff that I'm working with is like Gen 1 and Gen 2 of Nintendo. And let me tell you, especially from Japan, they have really interesting smells because of how old they are. <laughs> <clears throat> a lot of the time I like smell them and I'm like, 
this smells like my grandparents' house. And then I have this like a, a moment where I'm like, oh God, things from my generation are starting to smell like my grandparents' house. That's not good. <laughs> 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 oh god all right all right i'm getting a little bit out of myself let's uh let's talk a little bit more about boundary break before we come back to region break sounds Need good to, <laughs> yes make sure i say the right thing there <laughs> okay so can you take me through the process of making a boundary break video sure um so first i have to to find out if there's a camera available or if there's a tool creator available that can make a camera um so that's a good portion of production believe it or not it's it's one of those things that really slows me down compared to other people on YouTube um, is trying to find out if there's a camera that's viable. So I'll go into that and see and test and do more testing until I figure out, okay, this is something that I can explore the game fully or heck, there's such a high demand for this game. I'm willing to make some sacrifices in terms of being able to use a camera tool just to get something and make people happy. Mm -hmm. So that then from there, that's where the uh, the collecting begins. And basically, in, at this point, I do not play the games legitimately. I do everything I can to supersede any grind or rather just get rid of any grind. And uh, so that includes like if I can jump high or if I can take no damage or if I can kill enemies that would take 15 minutes long to kill in uh, one hit. Uh, whatever it takes to just make the process as fast as possible while still exploring the entirety of the game's content, like every level, every cutscene, every character model, like everything outside the skybox, underneath the, the ground. I have to look at everything because from my experience, I've learned that there's just so much uh, that is available in every given aspect of going through the game's geometry. So that's where the heavy load comes in. That's where I spend a majority of my time, um, which ends up more often than not being slightly longer than playing through the game legitimately um, because you're just kind of stopping to smell the roses in every given area. And <clears throat> so then once I beat the game, once I've known that I've gone through the entirety of the game's content, I now have a whole mess of video clips. And this is where... I basically, back in the day, I used to be able to just memorize um, all the clips that I collected and just kind of conjure up in my head about a category for each. Um, or in so some earlier episodes, I would literally go in chronological order. But then I started to realize it's like, okay, it's like I'm reintroducing similar concepts that I was talking about five minutes ago. Why not just lump these two into a similar category instead? So I've started doing categories. Now, as I've learned to pick up every conceivable thing, I decided, okay, I'm going to um, categorize them as I go along or spend one full workday looking at each individual clip and writing in a category for it, like numerizing it. Like this is a uh, subject one, subject two, subject three, subject four. And at the end of every subject, I do a zoom out as well. So I have a pool of zoom out clips, uh, panning the camera away from the environment so you can see as much of the environment as possible. And they kind of mm -hmm. add themselves as scene breakers, essentially. And um, yeah, and then from there, I record audio for all those clips that are now fully organized. I don't do scripts. Um, I just look at the clips briefly, and then I talk about them um, candidly. And Really? Yeah. Um, 
and then I'll just kind of edit out any ums or pauses or stuttering or stammering and uh, make it nice and clean sounding. And then that's when I go into the video editing phase, grab some music off of YouTube, work into the background and uh, yeah, just compile it all together. And that's, that's how I make a boundary break video. Wow, super interesting. I honestly never thought about how there's like, not even just the cameras, but so many other tools you could use to break stuff in a game to see what's beyond the barriers. Like even just using stuff like NoClip or I guess NoClip is kind of obvious, but like invincibility or other cheats. That's super cool. Oh yeah, cheat tables are like a big win for for someone. Like doing this the show on an actual console is it's a bit daunting because you have less of those resources available to you. Anytime I can play any of these games on a PC, there's bound to be somebody that decided they need to have a whole mess of cheats for that video game. And so it helps me immensely. Right, right. You said a cheat table? Right. For PC games, people oftentimes, they'll make an executable program that attaches itself to the game that like gives you a whole list of cheats. Like you'll press like a function key to give yourself like max money or uh, invincibility and stuff like that. Ah, like a, like a game genie or a... Um... The the other one. Oh my god, I can't remember. Game Shark. Yeah. <laughs> Game Shark. Action yeah, replay. Yeah. 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 Action replay. That was the one I used as a kid. Oh really? Oh, that's cool. Oh yeah. That that's nostalgic for me. But uh, super cool. Super interesting. What is the most interesting thing you ever found in a boundary break episode? All right. So my number one favorite discovery <clears throat> that was completely undocumented was um, in Punch Out for Wii. So in a boxing match with Han- Piston Hondo. He's reading a book in between rounds, and you never get to see what's in the book. But by taking the uh-huh. camera over, like in the inner pages of the book, you can find legitimate panels of the Sailor Moon manga. Um, really? Yes, which is not supposed, like, that's a big no no because, you know, that's a copyright issue. And, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it is distorted it is uh adjusted so that there's no actual spoken dialogue like the the dialogue boxes are messed with um and the panels are also arranged from various pages of sailor moon but they are all legitimate panels from the sailor moon manga um and again this was completely undocumented prior to to publishing it on boundary break which i was shocked by and uh it turns out too i did a follow-up video because one of the developers who had left the company, uh, Next Level Games, reached out to me and basically said, I know all about this. If you want more information, you know, let's talk. And so we talked and they were like, yeah, oh. this is there was this massive issue where it was caught last second and that was one second too late. And uh, they had to publish it that way in the US. But um, in Japan, they altered it so that it no longer has Sailor Moon panels. And they also reportedly... uh, like supposedly according to this person uh nintendo preemptively reached out to namco uh bandai namco and um settled it before it ever went to court wow how interesting imagine that court case being uh (laughs) imagine the headlines there right The, the only issue with this discovery is that people make this misconception that i like started this i made someone lose their job or i made nintendo pay millions of dollars Far from it. Um, I, I discovered this years after Nintendo did all these things behind the scenes. So, Right, right. I can imagine. So what uh, is that what's stopping you from actually putting it in a video? Oh, no. It's in the video. It's in the Punch-Out. Oh, it yeah, it's in the Punch-Out video starring uh, Summoning Salt. 
Oh, super cool, super cool. I thought you said, uh, I thought I heard you say it was undocumented, but that's super cool. No, pr- uh, previously undocumented. Oh, oh, okay, that makes sense. Super cool, super cool. I have to watch that now, Summoning Salt. That's, that's very cool. So what inspired Boundary Break originally? Um, so, believe it or not, there was uh, generally no inspiration behind Boundary Break, if you can believe that. I guess, like, the, the most inspiration, which would uh, might come as a shock, is something like the angry video game nerd because what happened was um i was during a generation where youtube was not really meant to be uh, a produced content website it was just people doing vlogs um or doing like um diary documentary stuff on their lives and stuff like that but then (laughs) one day i'm on a game facts forum and someone's like oh you gotta check out the angry video game nerd and so i checked it out and i i loved it and i i adored i started adoring youtube and i started looking for similar content to his and it sucked me into the youtube um at you know the ecosystem of youtube and i became a huge viewer and i wanted to be a creator i always loved entertainment and i never knew how i could actually get myself wedged into that field and there was a certain point in time where i was like i want to do youtube badly and I was trying to do reviews or top tens or comparison lists and stuff like that. None of it was really mm-hmm. landing. And I certainly did not have the presence to to really make it an impact on YouTube with my personality alone at the time. And um, But I always knew that this is something I wanted to do. And I knew also that it comes with experience that you get better at doing YouTube and stuff. And I had a little bit of experience underneath my belt. And then all of a sudden, I'm... <clears throat> um, I'm trying to figure out how to use a ma- mouse pointer um, to to replicate the IR uh, pointer on, for a Wii. And oh. ironically enough, my favorite discovery was also the, the game that set this all into motion. It was Punch-Out Wii. And um, so I'm, I'm rummaging through all the, the options on this program that I'm using. And um, I see an option for free look. And I thought maybe this is what I'm looking for. And I click on it. And then suddenly I'm manipulating the perspective of a game that has a very strict perspective. There's like almost no camera movement. Um, And I was blown away. So what I did was I posted a clip onto YouTube. It was raw. And a website that I had been trying to get um, my content featured on for for a couple of years suddenly just promoted this raw clip. And... I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I got something on my hands here. So I, you know, I go on YouTube and I type in all the the keywords that I could possibly think of that um, may bring up a show that has this idea that I have and nobody was doing it. Not not, pretty much no one. And like, if I'm being incredibly honest, the only thing that I was able to find after I started doing Boundary Break and not before was that there was like this one person that was doing a series of videos for Silent Hill 2 um, with no commentary or anything like that. But I, I couldn't find them when I was trying to make my search. And so that was like uh-huh. the closest thing. And so with that in mind, I was like, well, I can produce this into a show. No problem. And so I started making what my idea is of a show. And um, believe it or not, I was not... It's not that I hated it, but like I wasn't actively engaged with infotubers uh you know including video game infotubers so i was trying to separate myself from stuff like digital gaming son of a glitch and beta 64 and all that stuff and um it just kind of 
I was basically reined in over time and realized like, okay, look, you know, it's, it may not be the content that I consume, but this is certainly content I can produce. And so, um, uh-huh. I slowly became, you know, my own identity as far as what an infotuber is. And, um, yeah. And so that's, that's how the show kind of formed into what it was that I never really watched any of those shows to, to gain inspiration from is, which is basically what I'm saying. Like my true inspirations are people like James Rolfe and stuff like that. And it just kind of got kicked out of me as I was making more and more episodes of boundary break. Uh huh. Super interesting. I'm surprised you weren't actually a fan of uh info tubers before you started. No. Yeah. I mean like, again, great, great content is just, um, I, I went more towards the, uh, and I still do to this day. I, I tend to lean a little more towards, uh, people that, um, produce like characters like the nostalgia critic and um you know arlo and stuff like that well though he's news but you know he's still his own identity and character and stuff like that it's interesting to me arlo's definitely got a got a very specific character of like his avatar and everything yeah oh nitro red's another good example uh some call me johnny or the completionist stuff like that yeah yeah ah naming all my favorites what uh around how long ago was it that you got started um, I'd say five or six years at this point. It's probably pushing six, but I think I'm still on year five. I see, I see. And is that like around the time when a lot of other uh, infotubers started to like in the in the video game sphere at least started to pop up, or were you a little bit after like the boom started to happen? I suppose. I think I was a little bit after. I think uh, a lot of people got inspired by people like Son of a Glitch and Digino Gaming and stuff like that, and so you know mm-hmm. there, you started to see a lot of. Like, oh, I can do that too type channels. And uh, yeah, I think I like, I kind of carved out my own space in that field because um, I suppose it was starting to get saturated at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I think it became more and more apparent what I was surrounded with as I was doing Boundary Break. You know, there's people that predate me and stuff like that. Um, not with Boundary Break as a concept, but as a gaming infotuber. And, right, um, right. but because I'm boundary break, you know, these people start introducing themselves more and more and express appreciation or interest in my show. And, um, so I become familiarized with them. So, uh, it's hard to say, honestly, but I do think that I probably was on the cusp of where the boon started. Interesting. Interesting. Honestly, hearing you say a lot of these names, just like, Gives me uh, this intense sense of nostalgia because, like, the completionist son of a glitch, did you know gaming? Boundary break, of course. It's like I I remember watching those videos so much as a kid. I love this stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a, I'm an equal equal parts fan. So it's like when I get to meet these people in real life, it's like surreal, you know. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a, like over time you realize it's like okay, um, uh, what do we think? Like Swanky Box and stuff like that, or Swanky um, Box. Yeah, he he's um. He, he he honestly he was one of the first people to appreciate my channel and um help promote it and stuff like that um, oh yeah but he he's also an infotuber essentially but he, he's got his hand in a lot of pockets in terms of uh youtube content it's kind of interesting but oh for sure i love swanky box oh oh you have heard of swanky box oh yeah oh, okay. oh yeah i i'm like i i maybe not so much as i used to be but I, I love uh, video game infotubers. I, this stuff is super interesting to me. I listen to it a lot. Oh, awesome. Yeah, dude. Well, then I'm glad that I'm here. I'm in good company. Then. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. Of course. <laughs> but uh, to get back on topic, uh, 
how do you choose a game for Boundary Break? What are like the criteria you're looking for? So sadly, you know, as far as perpetuating YouTube as a career, there's a there is the aspect of will this game be popular enough? Will people actually care? Um, and then there's mm-hmm. the the but there's the counterbalance um, where I I do want to have a personal vested interest in the game as well. It makes it far less um, tedious, uh, mind numbing, you know. Um, yeah, like yeah. for example, I, I haven't gotten started on my next project yet because there is this promise that I should be able to get a camera for Elden Ring really soon, and I'm like really into Elden Ring at the moment. So Ooh. yeah, so it's kind of stalling my content just a slight bit, but I'm hoping that by tomorrow or the next day I'll have an Elden Ring camera in my hands. Um, but yeah, the idea is usually to appeal to the audience and also appeal to myself in some degree, um, and. The audience at this point really does know what they want to see as far as stuff out of bounds. So, mm-hmm. so you know, you just, it's not even so much like, oh, the game is super popular, just cover it. It's, there is, the audience has like a, a attunement to like, oh, I bet you there'd be a lot of cool stuff out of bounds in this video game. Please cover it, she says. And by, when I get enough requests like that, I'll oftentimes figure out a way to, to make it happen. Um, but yeah, it's like, there, there's still like there's if I can cover a game that is popular and on my radar as far as my personal interests, it's like cookies and cream, peanut butter and jelly, like it's the perfect combination, and um, that's like what I will immediately go for before something that will get me banger views like Fortnite. Um, I mean, I do want to cover Fortnite at some point, but I don't have a personal vested interest, and that's why it's taken so long to actually <laughs> produce one. Um, so long as there's a, a trail of games that I enjoy, that's where the direction of the channel tends to go. So, yeah. Right, right. Completely fair. I think the, uh, the stuff like this really requires some passion and, like, care about what you're talking about. And when you can feel that in a video like one of yours or any of, uh, any video of this type, it automatically makes it so much, uh, so much more interesting, so much easier to get invested in it yourself. Yeah, I mean, like, a big part of it is, like, if I'm interested... It's it. You get that level of immersion when you're watching it. You know, you can kind of feel the energy, and you can kind of. There's some people that vibe off of it, and then you know, feel that excitement in themselves when they watch it. So, like if yeah, I if yeah. I can have that, yeah, it's 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 a very important aspect to to producing any kind of content. Really, like there's for any infotuber that would be listening to this, I would definitely say have some passion behind what you're talking about. You don't have to be a robot about it. Like just enjoy what you're talking about and the audience will catch the fact that you're enjoying it right for sure and that could also inspire people to be more interested and enjoy it more themselves super cool what is your favorite episode of uh boundary break you've made oh so this one's always a tough one to answer because there's so many episodes i produced but i have a, a handful of favorite episodes so i'm particularly proud of the episode 100 where i went through every generation of nintendo up to that point including the game and watch that one is really good and you know there's like a couple of things on a creator level that i care about i mean as a viewer or someone listening to this interview they may not understand why this would matter to me but um that's a video that got over a million views that's easy to understand but the fact that right, right. the fact that i'm i think i'm featured on camera at the start of the video means a lot because uh, you know there's brand recognition and then there's uh, personal recognition. Like if I go to a convention, are people going to know that she says is walking around in it? Um, 
that's that's debatable. You may have seen a Boundary Break episode, but do you know what the creator looks like? And so the fact that I'm at the, at the start of that video and it hit over a million views and like there was excellent animation transitions in between each generation of Nintendo, um, it came together so incredibly well that I'm particularly proud of that one. Um, the Another one that I really, uh, again... It's funny because my favorite episodes aren't necessarily about the contents, what I managed to accomplish in them. Um, another one that I really like is the first Animal Crossing New Horizons video. Um, yeah. Th- there was, I got Vinny Vinesauce as a guest, and that one is particularly special to me because I like Vinny. I think he's uh, a really interesting um, uh, entertainer, and... I've had him on the show before. I had him for the Mother 3 episode. And he sounded like, no offense to Vinny if he hears this. Hey, no offense <laughs> to you. But he sounded, he just wasn't in his element. Um, and so, like, he sounded very deadpan. Um, like, he like he didn't belong there, kind of. And I was a little disappointed by that. Not in him, but just the fact that I was like, you know what? I didn't, I know that he's entertaining to people, obviously. Because he's he's got a massive audience. I don't think I utilized his talents correctly as a collaboration with boundary break. So I did some, um, critical thinking about how do I, I want to try this again and I want to do it right next time. And so with the animal crossing episode, um, if you don't know who Vinny vine sauce is, he's a streamer. So his personality is really what shines. It's what makes his brand, um, you know, valuable. And so what I did for the Animal Crossing episode was I managed to blend the two worlds together seamlessly. Uh, I still did boundary break. I still talked about aspects and facts and stuff like that um, that matter to my audience. But to, in order to co- incorporate Vinny correctly, I instead um, I made the segment where I visited his his world and I was going out of bounds in his town in Animal Crossing and used his reactions to those um <laughs> to those moments in my video and it just served as great entertainment for fans of Vinny Vine Sauce and my own channel and like it, it turned out to be a well-received episode and yeah so I I was particularly proud of that one too yeah I watched it like uh, just before this I really loved it it was super super entertaining just the best of both worlds oh thank you yeah I appreciate that um and then one last epi- uh, episode that is a much shorter explanation is uh I I do love my Metal Gear Solid episode because I got David Hader to do the intro. Like he he's Solid Snake, and he actually uh, portrayed Solid Snake for the intro of my video. Which that oh, was I really- watched that right before this too. That was so cool. I had a big dumb smile on my face the entire time. <laughs> yeah, so those are those are three big picks for me for sure. Super cool, super cool. I know you mentioned this with Elden Ring, but I wanted to ask: Do you have any plans for future Boundary Break episodes or games you plan to cover? Cover. That you can tell me? Yeah. Um, Final Fantasy VII Remake is another one. Ooh. Yeah. There's, um, Fortnite is one that I'm going to cover at some point. Uh, there, you know, it's just one of those ones where it's, you want to hold on to it until it's the time is right. Um, <laughs> so that will be another one. Um, outside of that, I don't have plans just yet. So, you know, three episodes ahead is... It's pretty far ahead in, for uh, Boundary Break, really. It's funny because there's always another game that's ready to go on the chop block um, by the time I'm done with an episode. So, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Have you? Are there any games like that you have decided in the past specifically not to do for any reason? 
like you considered but decided against yeah the first example of that was ever uh, poke park wii so i'd never really? even i've never even heard of the game and then <clears throat> very early on i had early fans and there was one fan that was like constantly saying do poke park wii do poke park wii <laughs> and so i was like yeah yeah I'll, I'll do it and then when i went into it i realized there's no content there's nothing underneath the map um the island itself is already zoomed out when you go to the start menu. So like me providing a zoom out has no value. And uh, none of the Pokemon had anything inside them. There was like nothing interesting, not a single thing. So I had to shelve that one. Um, uh-huh. That surprises me considering how much is going on in Poke Park. Yeah. Th- there was like literally nothing. Not a single thing. Um, Amazing. Hi- uh, Age of Calamity is one. Hyrule, oh. yeah, Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity was one where I was offered a camera and the camera just unfortunately just could not do what I needed it to do at times where I needed it most. And so, and on top of that, the game would lag. And so I was like, okay, this is just a miserable experience. I can't invest 50 plus hours in this game world where like it's blotchy, it's lagging constantly and the camera is fighting with me at any given moment. So I had to shelf that one as well. Right, right. That's a shame. Yeah, that would have been a fun one to do if, if everything just went well. Yeah, too bad. So then let's uh, talk a little bit more about Region Break. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, okay. So what got you to start doing Region Break in the first place? What inspired that? So it should be stated that there was at one point a YouTuber that I was watching um, named Josh Call. He was doing uh, this series very similar um and then he stopped producing content for years and you know quite if i can be quite honest um i had forgotten that i even saw his channel because he had not produced content for three to four years um Uh and then i was playing japanese uh, nes games on the nintendo switch and i you know i knew that there was differences between a couple of old school nintendo games and so i wanted to see what, how different it would be to play Zelda 2. And I start playing it, and the differences were immediate. Like, it was, the contrast was so vast and uh, apparent. And I was like, this is really cool. So, um, there may have been like a, a thought in the back of my head about Josh's content, but it really wasn't like, well, Josh was doing this, I can do it too, kind of thing. It was literally like a, Kind of just like I could definitely make this into a uh, not boundary break, but uh, content that would be appealing to a boundary break audience. And so um, I produced the first episode and then I remember, you know, I like someone brought to my attention Josh Call and I was like, oh, God, I, I totally forgot, you know, and I looked and it was like, oh, there you go. There's a reason why I forgot. He hasn't produced any content in four years. So. <laughs> So at that point, I was like, you know, if Josh ever wants to come back, um, I know that people make content similar to one another, but me personally, like I, I have my own thing and I don't mind just sticking to my own thing. Um, so I, you know, if Josh ever came back, I would sooner promote his content than, um, than continue my own with, with uh, region break. But because there's no one taking up the mantle right now, it's like, Hey, you know what? This is interesting stuff. And I can cover video games that Josh hasn't even covered before. And uh, let's just see what my take on 
this whole idea is. And it has kind of evolved into its own thing. Um, and yeah, that's like the legacy of region break. Super cool. Super cool. Kind of like, uh, taking up the mantle of this, uh, really good idea that just isn't being made anymore. That's super cool. Yeah. And again, it's, it's super fun to do too. It's a blessing that I can do something other than boundary break after five years. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Uh, I know you haven't done that many of them yet. So if you can't answer that, that answer this, that's okay. But what is uh, the most interesting thing you found in region break so far? Ooh, um, that is a good question. I mean, like with the last episode, there was like a couple of enemy placements and stuff like that, that wasn't covered on the cutting room floor. You know, it should be stated too. Um, cutting room floor is used as ever since boundary break and including region break. Um, it is used as a, let me pick up the pieces type thing in case I missed anything resource. It's not a, Oh, let me look at everything on the cutting room floor and then place it into my video kind of deal. I do like to discover things on my own. Right. Um, and so as I'm covering this episode for super Mario brothers Two, you know, I I'm just about wrapping up. I have, um, placements set everywhere so that I can jump to any part of the game. And I checked the cutting room floor website and I was shocked at how many things were not featured on the website. Um, like Bezos that were flying left and right, uh, or a tweeter, these are all enemy names from Super Mario Brothers 2. Uh, a tweeter <laughs> that was uh, behind two shy guys in a certain room and stuff like that. Like, none of this was mentioned. And I was like, wow, this is like a lot of content that is not documented. So th- there was a lot of really cool things in that regard. Um, I'm honestly surprised, like, uh, that I haven't seen a video like that. But there is so much in that. I didn't watch the entire thing. But there is so much in that that I, I never knew about. And, like, with all the coverage that you would think the Mar- main Mario games get, it's, like, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, seriously. Like, um, the Doki Doki Panic Manual, I don't know if it's ever been translated. It was certainly not an easy resource to find. I had to, you know, enlist the help of Sky to, to translate it for me. And when I read it for the first time, I was like, this is really interesting. And drastically different from the opening for Mario Brothers 2. Like, I actually, it it's so similar but different in a way that it almost made me think, like, it, it developed a, a theory, a game theory, if you will, <laughs> in my head. <laughs> um, that Super Mario Brothers 2 is actually a uh, prequel to Doki Doki Panic because it's like the events of Doki Doki Panic uh, it's the opening for it is that Wart's already defeated and then the page is ripped out. The last page is ripped out where he's defeated and so they have to go back in and, and save uh, Picky and Pocky. And um, uh-huh. with Mario Brothers 2, it's like, by all accounts, I guess, they, I suppose you could say that the events of Mario Brothers 2 is what happened before or in the book that the reading of Doki Doki Panic. There's no reason to believe that that can't be the case. Wow, interesting. So it's like they could exist side by side in the same universe. Yeah, I don't see why not. They're retelling the same story. It's like pages have a <coughs> uh, this book. Only uh, the the uh, Fuji TV characters are placed in there instead. So I thought that was really interesting. I like I didn't put that in the video, but I thought to myself like, yeah, that's altogether possible. And again, I j- the only reason why I even thought of that is because I've never prior seen a resource slapped in my face about what the backstory or manual story of Doki Doki Panic was. Wow, super cool. 
Oh, oh, real quick, I should ask this. There might be a few people listening who don't know what the cutting room floor is. Could you explain that real quick? Absolutely. Um, I'd love to. So the cutting room floor is, their website is tcrf.com. And it's a Wikipedia page, essentially, um, that is, I would say, run by a community, not a single person, where Mm -hmm. they document all sorts of really interesting video game facts, like cut content, um, regional differences, and stuff alike like that. And it's not video content, but it is instead put in the form of like images and uh, descriptions. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in, in either of my shows, The Cutting Room Floor is an excellent website. You should definitely check it out. Super cool, super cool. I'll leave a link to that in the description too if you guys want to check that out. I highly recommend it. Uh, okay, back to Region Break. What is the process of making a Region Break video? Oh, man. So, um, basically, I will take two versions of the game. I will run it through a streaming software now at this point. It didn't start off that way, but as I started trying to do Region Break for streams, it kind of <laughs> it fell into place, honestly, where um, I found out it's much, much easier to stream the two games together um, and uh, create, like, so let me backtrack a little bit. So basically, because I'm using the streaming software, um, I can create um, visuals, like uh, like little areas where you can um, create like uh, the flags on each side and, and have the footage hosted uh, within the boxes that I created and stuff like that. <clears throat> um, it, it reduces a lot of video editing. So... I've started doing that instead, where basically I will run two games at the same time. I will map the controls um, to both games at the same time so that my input on left and right on one controller is controlling both characters simultaneously. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, and when I find something interesting, I just hit record on the streaming software, and I collect footage that way instead. And it saved me an astronomical amount of time. And it also made it... Uh, way less confusing that was also a learning process for me too is that i kept getting complaints from the audience it's like okay you're flipping the u.s side with the japanese side all too often and i get confused and it's like okay and then so i did that and it was like yeah it's hard for me to figure out in a flash second which side is the the u.s side and which side is the japanese side even when the entire video i would put the u.s side on the left and the japanese side on the right people still got confused so I was like, okay, we need to really hammer this in so that people don't get confused at any given point. So I like made like, you know, a faded American flag on the left and a faded Japanese flag or just stark white on the right. And then added the American flag and added the Japanese flag in the corners of each uh, side. Um, and uh, I kept it consistent. Left side is American, uh, right side is Japanese. And, um, and then I just, I just made the layout for that. And now the, the games can just be housed inside those boxes. And, uh, yeah, I just record the footage that way. And then I also, it's, um, I also have separate pages where, you know, you can just focus solely on the, the U S uh, version or solely on the Japanese version. And by clicking in between the scenes, it does a natural fade that will just get picked up on the recording as I click uh between the versions so um Uh yeah so a lot of editing um gets worked out that way and 
trust me, I would have never been able to do an episode like Super Mario Brothers 2 had I not had that process figured out by that time. Because it just would have taken so much time to individually edit all that stuff together the way I was doing with the first two episodes of Region Break. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I can imagine. I think I definitely noticed that uh, in your in your Mario Bros. 3 video, I think, because I definitely watched the entirety of that one. Super interesting. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, that's where it started, with Mario 3, and then um, I was just doing more of that with Mario 2. Yeah, very cool. So how do you feel about YouTube as a platform? It's fantastic in one way and then it's uh very stressful in another um Mm -hmm. so i i love the fact that you know especially if you're not going for the career route it's a wonderful platform to share any thoughts you have or share any information you have um or provide any entertainment you want and there will there's a good chance you can get an audience for it if it's good enough if people really care about it um so i really really like that about youtube uh, I still use it as my primary entertainment platform to this day, beating out stuff like cable television and streaming um, websites like Netflix and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as making it as a career, it's very stressful. And it's kind of, it's it's a little soul-sucking in a way because you, you, there's the, the more you want to actually make it a viable uh, career path for yourself, the more of yourself, your the things you're interested in, um, kind of get taken away a little bit, uh, and there can be there's always exceptions to that rule. But like especially in my career path, it was like okay, I have to I have to do it this way and speak in this quickly, and I have to avoid this, avoid that, can't do that, um, I can't cover that game because it's just not popular enough and stuff like that. Um, otherwise. People won't care. YouTube will pick up that people don't care and they won't share of anybody. And you're just kind of left by the wayside. And like another thing too is that at a certain point, there's a glass ceiling for every YouTube creator. Like I I can't do like summoning salt numbers for whatever reason, no matter how interesting my content is, no matter how many websites write about my video or whatever, uh, th- there's just there's just a cap that I'm stuck at where YouTube will not um, allow the content to flourish the same way that something salt content does. Um, And that's a little bit sad. It's like you kind of, so it's like, it's a little stressful and a little bit annoying that uh, what I'm working towards is just maintaining the sex, the success that I've gained rather than being able to uh, like, you know, achieve a higher success than that. So that in itself is like a little bit disappointing and I'd love to see YouTube, find creative ways to fix that sort of issue. Um, But, you know, I can't complain too much. I get a career doing what I love. Um, I love creating YouTube videos. It's, I'm my own boss, you know, and there's, instead of one boss telling me that I could do something slightly better every single day, there's thousands of people telling me that they love what I'm doing every single day. And like, I wouldn't give that away for the world. So that in itself is an enormous gift. and so, right. yeah, so I really can't bite into the hand that it feeds me that much, but that's probably my one major criticism is that I don't think there's anything I could produce. I could produce the exact same video as Summoning Salt, the last video that he put out, and it would probably do a third of his, his viewership. And it, it doesn't make any sense that, you know, that that would definitely be the case. Um, mm-hmm. 
But aside from that, like I said, amazing platform. I love it. Huh. Makes me really like curious as to why that happens. Like obviously your videos have the numbers already and like the the work put into them, obviously. You would think that they would appeal to the YouTube algorithm pretty well. In a sense they do, you know. I I definitely am a cut above a lot of my competition. Um, you know, it's and I think a large part of that is that I was kind of like the pioneer of it, but still like, you know, as far as the content that I am producing, I don't I don't see too many people doing better than me when they attempt to do it. It's like the only time I ever see somebody do like banger numbers um, with the same concept as me is when they're um, covering a very specific game and they're already a massively popular YouTuber as a, as a result of that. So it's like, right, right. like someone doing Poppy's Playtime, they're going to make like 8 million views doing a boundary break video of Poppy's Playtime because they've only been covering Poppy's Playtime. And then um, if I cover a Poppy's Playtime video, it's going to do like 400,000 views. So, you know, but like I said, if anyone's trying to, to be like boundary break Pepsi version, you know, um, I've still managed to kind of be a cut above that at the, at the very least. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. that. Okay, interesting, interesting. Really makes me wonder if like summoning salt knows something that they're they're doing like putting uh, like the, the keywords or the tags or something. I think with summoning salt's case is that he did a couple things very right. So, one, he was the first to the scene. He's a pioneer of his own content, which is True. that's big, that's huge. Two, um, he really wasn't that bad when he was starting out. Like I was fumbling around and uh, kind of doing a lot to kind of find my identity on YouTube as I was making more episodes, but something salt found his identity very quickly. Like there was a couple of changes here and there. Um, but like they were minor and they were just small improvements to what was already a winning formula from almost the very start. So there's, yeah, yeah. so there's that. And then there's a more general appeal. Like everyone can understand the term speed running, but not everybody gets involved in the scene of it. So like, it's a very catch all kind of concept. Um, so like it's very valuable content and very easy to understand content, very marketable content. Um, right, right. And uh, and the last thing, which is something that a lot of people probably don't consider, he when you st- when you make a YouTube channel, when you start to get successful, whatever pace you are going at in terms of putting out videos, that's what the YouTube algorithm expects from you from then on. So he was always doing like one video a month um, or one video every two months or whatever. And um, so the YouTube algorithm is programmed to think, okay, this guy has to put out a video once a month. And he really doesn't need a whole month to do a summoning salt video. Like if I'm passionate about a similar subject, I could produce that video in like a week. Um, but he takes a, a month and he should continue to only produce uh, one video a month because it, it's the algorithm is rewarding him for keeping up with his own schedule that he made in the first place. So um, a big separation between me and him is that I started off weekly and then as the content grew and expanded and became more complex, um, I needed that extra time. Whereas with him, he started at one video a month. And so the algorithm understands that he has a once a month type content and rewards him greatly to do that schedule upload. So that's like, it's an amalgamation of all those things put together that makes a much more successful channel. And I'm really happy for him. Um, 
But yeah, I've thought about that stuff deeply, and that's pretty much, if I had to guess what was the recipe for why Summoning Salt is such a massively successful YouTube channel, that that tells it all. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he really came out swinging, like already had great like production quality on every aspect, really good microphone, really good audio setup, really good video, and also like that music is iconic already. Yes. <laughs> like even just the first video, you heard that music and it was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. He had he loves that eighties uh eighties tech like techno kind of or eighties electronica kind of music that was used in movies back then and like uh it really speaks to the nostalgic side of people my age and then also younger people don't hear it that often outside of stranger things so um you know when they hear it it's like this this vibe that they never experienced before and so they get into it as well it's just a good sounding thing that's not used popularly in mainstream media anymore so you yeah, know, it makes he, it super distinct too. Yeah, exactly. It creates an identity that's just, it, it was lost in time and reintroduced. It's, it was smart, very smart. Yeah, incredibly smart. Dang. Also, the thing you said about uh, like releasing a video, your videos on a schedule and like how the YouTube algorithm rewards you for that. I never knew that. That is some really good advice. I might actually have to consider that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, you know, it's basically once you get that one successful video, think about how you want to be working like five years from now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something anybody ever wants to stop and think about, but seriously consider that like, if you're grinding really hard, stop as soon as you get that first viral video to like just, uh, immediately set a different expectation for the YouTube algorithm and like do something that is comfortable for you. Um, because that will prove itself to be a much healthier thing long run than uh, doing what I did, which was, I, I spent like, I would go home from work and I would work from six o'clock to 2 a.m. every single night. Um, yeah, and cut out a lot of friends and uh, social events and stuff like that just to get stuff done on time. And um, once I was able to work full time, that only gave me time to do, you know, even more work. Um, and so instead of instead of getting things done in a normal nine to five, I was uh, expanding the wealth of the content which, you know, with the YouTube algorithm that they don't care. <laughs> they just care about, you know, how often you're putting it out. So uh, it wasn't the best route for me. But again, I'm still doing fine. It's just that uh, if I could have arranged things differently, I would have probably uh, maintained a schedule that is similar to what I have today and still expand the content, but just like work full time and, you know, just take one month at a time or two videos a month. Uh huh. Uh huh. That is super interesting. Wow. That's some really good advice. Hey, yeah, any way I can help, you know, for future generations, I'm happy to, to lend you uh, whatever I know personally. You know, we're all kind of feeling around in the dark here on YouTube, but th- this is what I've come to understand as far as, uh, you know, my experience. Right, right, for sure. The algorithm is, like, just so insanely complex. Like, there's always new things being discovered, so many things that you can learn from so many different people. Absolutely. Okay. If YouTube were to shut down, what would you do for your content? Oh, man. I have thought about that. Um, one thing I thought about was maintaining uh, some level of entertainment on, like, Twitter or TikTok. And then, um, but primarily getting funding from performing these things live. So, like, mm. uh, yeah, going from venue to venue. I would like to imagine that if YouTube completely shut down there would still be people interested in my content, you know, from the fallout. 
And um, at that point, that would be a great time to to move in a different direction and just try to, you know, do sale ticket sales and um, and try to do it live. I have done it live with panels and stuff like that. It's basically training for for um, maybe a potential someday going on tour kind of thing. Um, oh, yeah. I and it's it's got its uh, setbacks and also advantages. Um, but, but yeah, so the idea would, the plan would probably be, uh, a big, bigger push on Patreon for, um, producing content on something like Twitter or TikTok, and then, um, also coupling that funding with, uh, ticket sales. Interesting. So like what kind of thing, uh, what exactly do you do like at panels and stuff live? I'll, I will take up to one to three games and, for about two hours, uh, I will actually bounce off the audience and, you know, I'll show them things that I know are in the game um, and show them in real time. And I will also accept, like, people shouting from the audience something they want to see. So there's a lot of, uh-huh. like, audience engagement. You know, there's like, hey, what do you, where do we, so what map should we look at next? And then people will yell out in the audience and I'll pick out something that someone said in the audience and then we'll go check out that level and stuff like that. Um, while also coupling things that I know will be genuinely interesting. It won't be just like exploring uncharted territory. There will be some really good stuff to, to discuss and talk about that if you go to these things, you will be entertained. Um, so, you know, there's a lot, a lot of that and, Honestly, like I love doing these things live. I, I know this is a little bit off topic, but one of the reasons why I keep doing these panels for free is because I love hearing the reaction from the audiences. Like you know mm-hmm. the the disgust when we go up Wario's butt, or <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, or the or the amazement when we uh, check out like a a projection screen that seems to tailor itself to wherever the camera position is, and so, so like we mess around with that and see what happens when we test that out to its limits and stuff. Um, it's wonderful, you know? So, um, it's like, it's that coupled with just practice, practice being in front of large crowds and stuff. So, yeah, Yeah. but it's a ton of fun. People usually walk away being very, very happy. Um, because usually panels are just like your favorite creator will get up on a, a stage and just answer questions and it's very quiet, you know, and you're just kind of like learning more intimately about that person. But, with me, I try to make it into like a, I call it like a, a live performance slash uh, party. <laughs> right, I'm, right. A, I'm like your, your boundary breaking DJ, basically. <laughs> boundary breaking DJ. Perfect. Perfect. I love that. That sounds so fun. Oh, it's a ton of fun. Okay. Have you ever had any issues with Nintendo trying to take down your videos because you're showing something that they don't want other people to see? Yes. Or any other uh, game company? Yes. So one time, um, I was, so it was the Animal Crossing part two, uh, new horizons video. I, I, I put out a, a pretty good episode and, um, so it was getting media coverage and stuff like that. Now this is speculation. Um, but I believe what caused the trouble with this episode was that Kotaku picked it up. Love Kotaku, by the way, if anybody from Kotaku is listening, <laughs> love them over there. But, um, this was an unusual case. Someone from Nintendo tried to take down my video, which had never happened before. Um, I knew that they were aware of me, but um, and I knew that I broke some of their policies, 
But I think the idea was that I was harmless and popular and well-meaning, so they did not try to, to mess with my channel. Um, and so in this particular case, Kotaku writes about me, and I think it was just the article title and thumbnail used for the article that probably really set off some sirens at Nintendo. And the name of the, the article was, The Animal Crossing Villagers in New Horizons are Never Nudes. And oh. and it showed a picture of an Animal Crossing villager without any clothing on. Um, and the reason why they said never nudes was because it's something that you can't see by normal means. But if you have absolutely no clothing on your villager, there's still a safeguard um, for the character where its model has a black uh, texture over its body parts. Uh, it's in, you know more intimate body parts to prevent um, any accidental nudity, and um, you know I presented it on my show in a very clean, um, you know, sort of like let's get analytical about this sort of way, not a like salacious sort of way, um, like it was written on the Kotaku article. So the video gets taken down. Um, I have a chance to appeal, and. I just, I had a thought. I was like, you know, it's like there's just so much lack of humanity when, the, when these sort of things happen. It's like nameless corporation takes down video. YouTuber usually just whines about it on Twitter for a little bit and moves on. Um, but to me, like, you know, these videos take a substantial amount of time to produce. If a video was taken down, that's like potentially half my income maybe more if it was like supposed to be the big video which in that case it was um i can be like Oof. yeah completely stricken of any sort of monetary income for that month and i need to pay bills and you know afford groceries and stuff like that so i thought about it i was like you know why doesn't anybody ever try to appeal to nintendo i have a platform i can't speak of them to them directly i know i can't but you know i have an audience and the reason why I have an audience is why YouTube or rather Nintendo saw my video to begin with. Um, so I instead, and I did not do this. I was also thinking about this very sincerely. Like I'm not doing this as a grandstand for my audience. I'm doing this to try to reach out to Nintendo in the only way I know possible. So um, I went on camera and I spoke as if I was speaking to Doug Bowser directly and um you know, tried to explain to him what my content was, uh, the intent behind my content, safeguards I use to make sure that developers are not um, losing money by uh, people being influenced by my content and replicating my content and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. So basically, I tried to explain every aspect of my show in simple terms to these uh you know, publishers at Nintendo, the, the legal side at Nintendo and the higher, higher ups at Nintendo, um, uh, to, to, you know, add, give myself a fair shake. And that also that I don't have any ill will or, you know, negative feelings for towards the company. And I can understand where they're coming from, but you know, I'm imploring them to just understand my side of things a little better. And, um, a result of that was something you don't normally see out of Nintendo, uh, they didn't revoke the uh, takedown immediately, but their inaction uh, allowed me to t get my video back after a month. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And usually they're a lot better about upholding 
um, their takedowns after it had happened. So I think that in a small way, you know, again, if you think about it from their perspective, if they had just straight up removed the takedown, it sends a message to me and my audience that like, oh, we messed up. My bad. Um, you know, we shouldn't have done that. But by being inactive, it's like a small way of saying like, you know, you know, okay, we'll throw you a bone here, um, but we're not going to do any action that would imply that we made a mistake. It looks a lot better on us if it looks like we just forgot about this, you know? <laughs> so that's how I like to look at it. And um, yeah, I got my video back. So, you know, that's better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. It was a big win for me. I, I was like, oh, this oh. is amazing. Um, so, you know, I'm very thankful to whoever made that executive call at Nintendo. And um, yeah, it, it has not shied me away from continuing to make Nintendo content. I really hope that they don't continue to try to take down any of my videos. But um, yeah, uh, it was that was a one tumultuous time in my career when a game company tried to directly intervene with, um, with content I was putting out. Huh. Super interesting. Wow. I'm surprised that they actually like decided to be inactive on it. I've never heard of Nintendo doing something like that before. No, me neither. And, you know, lots of testimonies basically are telling me like, don't bother. Don't try. Um, we've all tried in the past. It just doesn't work out. So, you know, and there was like a lot of people too, that when I put out the video, they were humongous Nintendo stands and just were like, this is Nintendo's property. You don't have the right to it and all this stuff. And it's like, Oh God, like, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, th- th- you're speaking with facts. Sure. But like, d- can you, can you see outside of that for a, a little bit? Like, you know, I'm just a guy that's trying to cause no harm to this company. You know, I'm just trying to coexist with other YouTubers. So, you know, can what you- issue could this possibly post to Nintendo? Honestly? Yeah, exactly. It's aside from, you know, bad publicity with the never nude thing on Kotaku. I could see how that a company that I values itself that. and family values uh, could see that as a threat. So that's why more on Kotaku though than anything. What a terrible way to title it. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very um, they they were for in in their defense they were looking for the most exciting way for a person to click on an article, and right, I suppose. Right. They accomplished their job very, very well, but it was, That's unfortunately, true. yeah, it just kind of, it lacked awareness towards uh, Nintendo's uh, values and um, how they would engage with me and stuff like that. Again, I, it's not even uh, definite whether or not that's the, the reason why. It could have just been that someone from Nintendo just saw my video and just didn't like it. But, like, that was the first time ever in my, I think up to that point, four-year career. That's actually really surprising. Especially with how like strict Nintendo is about this stuff. Yeah, I've seen them, you know, go after fellow YouTubers that I, I, I'm a huge fan of, and I've always wondered when it was me on the chop block next. But um, before and after that, no other problems with Nintendo. Wow, interesting. Okay, well, I think we're at a a good time to. No, wait, I have one more question I wanted to ask yeah. before we get to the final question. Actually. I'm excited. Okay, so your channel, you're at about. 925,000 subscribers? Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, 26. Close enough. <laughs> you're, all, you're kind of approaching a million subscribers, maybe like within the next... Within this year, possibly? How do you feel about that? I, I'm both excited and deflated. You know, it's, it's interesting because it's like, I want to hit this goal so bad. You have no idea. Like, just to have the plaque on my wall. And like, no matter what happens in the future... 
I'll have that accolade forever in my possession. I achieved 1 million subscribers. That's an amazing achievement. Um, Alternatively, um, the state of the channel is not at at an amazing spot that um, a million subscriber channel would normally have. So it's like, I'm already seeing it where people are like, he's a 900,000 subscriber channel. How dare he do this? How dare he talk about that? And blah, blah, blah. But like, I'm still running with numbers that are like, you know, similar to my 300,000 compatriots or like 200,000 subscriber compatriots. Um, So like, it just like, it comes with a a territory of, of uh, reputation that I don't even get the benefits of is basically how I also feel about it. So mm. I know it's like you just want to be able to answer that question with, I'm super excited. But that's the the honest answer for you is that I'm both excited and also just like a little bit sad that like I'm going to have this added responsibility of a million subscriber channel that like doesn't even reap the benefits of it really. So Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, but there you go. That's, that's your answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting, though. I never thought about that, but yeah, that is a that's like kind of sucks to have that responsibility forced onto you. Yeah, that's that's the worst part. Like I've seen the change over time, where like when you're a small time YouTuber, everybody's like on your side. Everybody's trying to be like, "Oh man, your content's super under. We have to do everything we can to to get this seen by people." And then once you get over a certain point, um, you start to see people being like, I am so tired of this. She says guy, I can't stand his content, <laughs> you know? And so like, there's just people coming at you in every d- different way to, to do something to make people like you a little bit less. So they don't have to see you on their Twitter timeline or whatever <laughs> as wow. quite as often. Yeah. It's crazy um, how that changes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, you know, um, being in entertainment is a very interesting thing for sure. There's like, you, you'd be, you'd be surprised how much of this is understanding human psychology and, uh, adapting to it properly. You know, um, there's lots of people that like get enraged, you know, and then obviously they look like a psychopath to the thousands of people that they're, uh, shouting out to online or on television or whatever. And then there's people that, you know, kind of understand how the actual, organic motion or uh, evolution of things go when it comes to to providing entertainment so um mine was not that messy like i kind of like i when i saw the initial changes uh, like it was a bit of a shock uh, it t- took me like one step backwards for a brief moment of time um but then i started to to like look around me and think about how other people experience similar things and i was like okay i can get my footing back here i can understand how this all works um so yeah okay interesting interesting it's kind of kind of crazy how like things change in that way from like just from this this number makes you almost less of a less of a person in a lot of people's eyes yeah no that's a great way to explain it it's it's like celebrity versus a a normal everyday person are two separate things to a lot of people um because all of a sudden i'm not a human being anymore I'm a, I'm a person with influence to a lot of people i don't see myself that way and i have to check myself often to be like okay i'm not just some random game facts person anymore i'm not just a random person with a small opinion i'm a person whose opinion literally can affect people whether it be like make them think the way i do or um just enrage them because it's so off base with how they feel about something so 
it's kind of like you have to fulfill that role even if you don't see yourself that way. Like I mm-hmm. t- still to this day don't see myself as a celebrity. I if anything I see myself as just like um a public servant, I guess. It's like kind of like oh I'm I'm providing information to people, but I don't see myself as famous. I just see myself as giving information to people. Like I'm providing that service is basically how I I view myself. Mhm. That is this crazy responsibility sounds horrible. <laughs> you get through it. You get through it. It's not too bad. <laughs> okay, okay. Understandable. Uh, okay. This also came to my mind, but I'm like 90% sure this will be the last question I ask before we go to the, before we wrap this up. Okay. So your channel is called She Says, not like Boundary Breaker, Region Breaker, anything like that. Why is that? Like, it seems like Boundary Break is what you're more well-known for. Like, that's a more of a moniker for you, like uh, like the name of your show, sort of, than She Says is. Yeah. So, um, if you recall very early into the interview, one of my greatest accomplishments was having my face um, in a million-viewed video uh, for mm-hmm. the, you know, episode 100. The, in conjunction with that, She Says is supposed to be my online persona, my alias. Um, and there, there is value to having separation between your show and yourself. So like, if I want to move on to other things, like for example, uh, region break, um, there needs to be an understanding from the audience that I am not boundary break. I, I am a different entity from that so that I can expand and do other things. Um, so that I can be recognized as a, as a person and not just, um, a fulfillment towards the show, you know, like the show is still, I, I would uh, say inarguably, uh, it shadows over me entirely. And it's always been a, a struggle from year one to, to have the audience understand or recognize me outside of, uh, outside of boundary break. Um, and again, the only reason why I have value for that or understand value for that is so that if I want to get booked for, um, like a, a pan, like a, a convention or something that um, there's a like people will understand like oh I'm going to see she says I'm not going to see boundary break you know um, I want to go say hi to to she says um, so I had to create an identity and so I just came up with a name that you know just uses two syllables and if you said it out loud in in real life you may accidentally say my name in a sentence so. That was the idea. It was like so that so occasionally someone will say she says um, in everyday conversation like, uh, oh, is uh, Samantha coming to the movies tonight? Oh, she says that she can, but she just needs to uh, do a couple of chores first. And then it's like, oh, I said she says. That's right. The guy from Boundary Break. Um, oh, that's clever. Yeah. So that's basically uh, where that all comes into play. And um, we're finally seeing finally after like five years seeing a positive effect from that, which is just that I can do region break and uh, people in the audience will be like, this is a, she says production. That's, that's cool. Um, I liked boundary break and I can get behind region break. Let's, let's go, let's do it. And if the channel was just called boundary break, there would probably be a much more substantial amount of people in my audience that would be like, this is the boundary break channel. Why is this here? You know? So that's why. Super cool. Very interesting. Happy to hear that you've uh, managed to make it that far. That's uh, that's really neat to hear. Uh, I, I can imagine that the struggle between being separated uh, as like a, a person from your content, especially when 
you make something so like distinctive with such a distinctive title as like region region locked and boundary break not region locked oh my god <laughs> oh i said it i've been i've been like stopping myself so much and it slipped out okay <laughs> <laughs> but uh i think i think we're good to go ahead and move on to the last question all right it's been a wonderful interview uh this is a question i ask at the end of every interview i've asked ask every person i interview if you could give one piece of advice to any creators out there not like, it could be any type of creators, like specifically, just like creative people in general, people who are making anything, or specifically YouTubers, or specifically video game info tubers. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have? Yeah, my biggest piece of advice to making it on YouTube, um, even if oh. even if it wasn't like a, that, that specific question, um, but like my best piece of advice is one that I give for people trying to make it on YouTube, is uh, have one of two things. It literally always takes just one of two things. It's either A, come up with an idea that people want to see that no one's ever done before, and that one's really tough, and I got really yeah. lucky with that. Um, but it, there's still ideas out there. Just take like a whole afternoon to try to figure something out that you would watch yourself, um, and it's not – don't be a narcissist. Don't be like, I'd watch myself do anything because I'm amazing. Like, <laughs> it has to be something that you would watch someone else do. And you know that you would watch that other person do it. Um, or B, have a personality that is unlike anything you've seen on YouTube um, or so disassociated from the YouTube platform. And by that, I mean like maybe you're, you're thinking of like a, um, a 90s celebrity that was really popular that you just don't see even like an ounce of that personality in today's landscape or something like that. Or just you and yourself. You are so interesting um, and so unique that whatever it is you decide to do, people will flock to you because you are that interesting as a person. Um, mm -hmm. Examples of that are video game Donkey. Um, oh, yeah. Like, it, love him or hate him, uh, JonTron uh, is another example of that, where he's doing things that other people are doing, but people gravitate towards that. Um, you know, things of that, of that nature. So um, it's one of the two. And like, if you can just focus your efforts towards one of those two things, you should at some point be able to do all right on YouTube. Um, and, mm -hmm. and whether it's A or B, you have to be likable, you know, like either like likable as in like you're just a good guy or girl or whatever, um, or you're so angry at something that... <laughs> All these other angry people just want to flock to you and agree and feel that energy off of you, something. Um, th that's my best advice, but it's just it comes down to two very primary components. Come up with something no one's ever done before or be somebody or give yourself as somebody that no one's ever seen before that people genuinely like. Right. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. All right. Super good advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on. She says it was incredibly cool to have you. Honestly, like, super surreal for me to have you on after I've been watching you for so long. Oh, it's my pleasure. And the questions were wonderful. I loved every single one of them. So thank you for coming thank up you. with these great questions. Yeah, thank you so much. I always try to put a lot of effort into them. But, uh, yeah. All right. Well, I will see you guys in the next episode. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks so much for watching the 19th episode of the Create Stuff Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Saxon, and this is Conclusion Stuff, the podcast within the podcast where I conclude stuff. 
Um, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. It, seriously, all the times when I said it was insane getting to interview him and that I've actually watched his content since I was like really young, that I was a Gen 1 or that wasn't a joke. I, I wasn't making that up. Like, I've been watching Boundary Break for so long. Actually hearing his voice in this recording, hearing his voice talking directly to me was insane. But uh, that's kind of something that happens with this podcast a lot. And it's it's really cool. This podcast has taken me to... This podcast has made me do some really interesting stuff. Really cool stuff that I would never get to do otherwise. And I'm extremely thankful for these opportunities. Speaking of opportunities, here's uh, three things that I think you guys should check out from my friends or other creators that I think are really cool. First one, you guys heard about SCP Sideshow? I think I already told you about that. Uh, I don't really remember though. I'm now on the team for it though. I am now one of the team members. You should go check it out. The Twitter to, for SCP Sideshow will be linked in the description. It is a channel on, no, it is not a channel. It is on Roku uh, on a channel called Otherworlds TV. If you have a Roku, you go and search Otherworlds TV on it, you'll find the, the channel there, it airs 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sundays local time. So whenever, wherever you are, it'll always be at uh, 8 a.m. There's also a YouTube channel where you can go check out the stuff that's on it. It is uh, essentially a platform for people who make stuff within the SCP sphere to share their stuff. And it's also a really good place to learn about the SCP wiki if you aren't already familiar with it. So if you're not a fan of the SCP wiki, um, I would highly recommend you check that out. If you don't know what the SCP Wiki is, then uh, you should check out my other series, SCP Authors and Almost, my other podcast where I interview authors on the SCP Wiki. You don't need to know what the SCP Wiki is to be very entertained by that. The most recent episode I did, the Jack Council, oh my good god, it was such an insane mess, but in a good way, uh, in a funny way. Second thing I'm going to recommend, my friend Tanrel, who I'm collaborating with uh, on something for SCP Sideshow, recently um, changed their channel, like, immensely uh, off of some advice I gave them, and I think it is, like, really, really cool now. Um, it was already really, really cool, don't get me wrong, but seriously, the changes they made, it's so neat, it's such a cool idea. Their channel is Gamma21, they make really good SCP readings, like seriously really high quality stuff over there, go check it out. It is, it's really really good, highly underrated, he does not get the views he he deserves. Also, I really cannot remember if I already plugged the Creepy Otter or not, the Creepy Otter, not the Creepy Otter, I don't think, but uh, go check him out too, he also does really amazing SCP readings and we're gonna collaborate uh, in the future too. And he also, he did a reading of my SCP article that I wrote, 6443, which I will link in the description. It was a really great reading and it made me so happy to see it get read. Um, Creepy Otter has an amazing voice. He's 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 wonderful. I love I love that guy so much. Third and last cool thing you guys should check out. I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. I'm gonna try. El Navaja is a uh, artist on YouTube who makes some really cool music. They are on the crew of Le Man Break Musical. This is how I found out about them. They recently released a song called Drifting on the 13th about 10 days ago when I'm recording this, and it's pretty good. Uh, I'm gonna link that in the description. Go check it out. Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much for watching the episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed. Seriously, tell all your friends. It really helps a lot. Word of mouth is the best thing I can do for this. And uh, yeah, if you're watching the premiere, oh, I just hit my microphone with my pop filter. That's funny. Um, I'm not going to fix that. Uh, if you're watching the premiere, say hi and leave a comment. Uh, all right. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.